in keeping with what we have already heard. I wonder if you would imagine with me what the possible headlines might have been there on the outskirts of the uh, Jerusalem Journal on the day after the birth of Jesus. Perhaps we would have seen something had we been living at that time entitled Bustling Bethlehem, now full of busybodies, perhaps. Or New Tax Brings a Record Travel to the Region. Or perhaps even Strange Sight Reported by Smelly Shepherds. That could have been the headline there on the Jerusalem Journal. But I wonder if it was not what Paul had to say in Titus 2 verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. I think that right there is the best label to go over the banner of any journal. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Notice that Paul continues saying that it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, even waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. You know those words to Rock of Ages. What is grace? What is grace, friend? This precious theological word, Charis, Jordan and Amanda named their daughter Charis. It's a beautiful name. Used 131 times in the Bible, 124 times in the New Testament, and 86 of those times by the Apostle Paul himself. No wonder we call him the Apostle of Grace. This word grace is a word which means something like undeserved or unmerited favor. It is the bestowal of a blessing undeserved. Grace, friends, simply put, is a gift. Grace is a gift. It's Babette's feast, a fine meal that costs everything for the giver and nothing for the recipient. Grace is better savored than explained. Nevertheless, the Apostle Paul says famously in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, that it is by grace that we have been saved, and that through faith, not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Over in the book of Romans, in another place where Paul had written, of course, a place dripping with divine grace, Paul says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. There it is. And through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Grace is what inclines God to give gifts that are free and undeserving to sinners like us. If God were capricious, malicious, or vindictive, then we would all be literally in a world of hurt. 
but he's not, and so we're not. A couple of chapters later in Romans chapter 6, Paul says famously, the wages of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, friend, wages are what you earn. Grace, on the other hand, is a gift that you receive undeserved and unearned. The grace of God in salvation is his unsolicited, free, and completely sovereign prerogative to bestow upon among his fallen creation his own goodwill, his own divine forgiveness, the blessing of his presence, and the assurance of peace with him in heaven. This gift, this amazing grace, is the benevolent blessing of a perfectly holy God coming to sinful men and women at the high and precious cost of his own sinless son. It turns out grace has a face, and that is the face of Jesus. We human beings didn't receive this grace and salvation after a diligent search or after pleading our case before the high court of heaven, or by groveling before God for his matchless mercy. Instead, as one writer once put it, the grace of God appeared by his own divine initiative, motivated solely by his own goodness, despite our total unworthiness. The creator spontaneously and voluntarily reached down in order to rescue and redeem humanity from its own self-imposed sinful condition. That's why it's grace. R.C. Sproul famously said once, if God owes us anything, he owes us death. There's a cheery Christmas thought. But it's true. The gift of God, the gift we cannot buy, the gift we cannot steal, the gift we cannot earn, you cannot merit, you cannot deserve, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, as Ron Meyer likes to pray, full and free. It is full and free. This is grace. This grace of God in the face of Christ is what Christmas is all about, and it's what we're going to sing about unashamedly at this church. It's the message of Christmas. And actually, it's the message behind Titus 2, 11 and following. You see, I think we needed to begin in such a way in order to understand rightly what Paul means when he says the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. You see, there are some profound depths here flowing out of the Apostle Paul's pen where he writes to Titus and to a community of early Christians in the, on the island of Crete in the mid-60s AD. See, the island of Crete was apparently the largest, even actually the southernmost island of ancient Greece. It's the fifth largest island in the Mediterranean Sea today. Long before Paul's day in the uh, 2700 B.C. down to the 1400 B.C., uh, Crete was the center of the great Minoan civilization. It was a significant place, one of the oldest recorded civilizations on the entire continent of Europe, in fact. Crete was a significant, if not strategic, city both to Rome and to Paul, and as it turns out, to God also. For during the time of the Roman Empire, adventurous ships could take a shortcut between Egypt and Rome across the Mediterranean, often using Crete as a port of call for rest and replenishing their stocks and supplies. 
And so consequently, there were many sailors who settled there in ancient Crete. Rough and worldly people, well deserving of the poor reputation that had become synonymous with that island state. It's a reputation that the famous uh, poet philosopher Epimenides himself says, and Paul himself records in Titus chapter 1, verse 12. You know this phrase. Epimenides saying, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. You see, to be called a Cretan in any other part of the Roman Empire was a serious insult. Them were fighting words, you might say. To be a Cretan was to be a conniving, lying, morally depraved pagan. It was about as far away as any of us might imagine a Christian ought to live and to be. And you see, that's where this little thing called grace comes rushing in. You see, we know from the book of Acts that there were actual Cretans there in Jerusalem when Peter and the apostles preached on Pentecost. They're listed in the uh, in the, the names of, of people and groups that were there in Jerusalem. We also know that Paul's arrest and his subsequent sea voyage to Rome is and uh, under his appeal to Caesar at the end of the book of Acts is also uh, recorded by Luke. And at least for some time, Paul was in that scenic harbor plate port called Fair Havens, which can still be visited today. It's a beautiful, breathtaking place. We know from the opening verses of the book of Titus that both Paul and Titus visited Crete in order to help the churches understand what God had desired for them. We read in Titus 1 verse 5, This, Titus, is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. You see, just like Timothy over in Ephesus, Titus was Paul's apostolic delegate on the island of Crete. And his task, his challenging task, was to visit the various Cretan churches, probably some 10 to 20 of them all told at that time, which were hugging the coastline around the island, and Titus was to preach the gospel, he was to model grace, and he was to install install rightly appointed elders. So then imagine with me, if you will, being one of these Cretan Christians on one particular Lord's Day morning when Pastor Titus walks in holding up a letter from the Apostle Paul. And when the crowd finally hushes down and people settle in their seats they hear these words. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Imagine having such a shameful and soiled and sordid reputation as these people. Remember, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Only to hear Paul say in the next chapter, for Titus 3, verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, 
hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I imagine that by the time Pastor Titus finished reading this letter, there wasn't a dry eye in the place. You see, to go from Cretan to Christian seems virtually impossible. But what does the Bible say, friend? It reminds me of Matthew chapter 19 when the disciples say to Jesus, Well, then who can be saved? To which he says, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Again, what does the Bible say? It reminds me of Luke chapter 7. When the Lord Jesus was invited into the house of Simon the Pharisee, and there was a woman of the city, a sinner as she's described, who began to wash Jesus' feet with her own tears and to dry his feet with her hair, only to be ridiculed and shamed by the self-righteous host, Simon. Do you remember what Jesus said to this woman? He says in the presence of all, Therefore I tell you, her sins are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. This is the scandal of grace. I want you to listen to what the 20th century German pastor and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer once described as cheap grace. Cheap grace. He said that cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is is baptism without church discipline. It is communion without repentance. It is absolution without personal confession. There's a lot of cheap grace going around these days. Costly grace, that is God's true and saving grace, on the other hand, he described, is the treasure hidden in a field for the sake of which a man will go and sell all that he has to possess it. It is the pearl of great price for which the merchant will give all his goods to own. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus at which the disciple lays down his net and follows him willingly. That is costly grace. Describing this costly grace, Bonhoeffer finally writes in The Cost of Discipleship, a great book if you've never read it, a great book. He says, quote, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man that which is truly life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, Bonhoeffer says, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God cannot be cheap. For us. But above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for us, but delivered him up for us. He concludes saying, Costly grace is the incarnation of God. I don't want to burst anyone's bubble here this morning, but we're not all that different than Cretans. 
apart from grace, apart from God's rescuing grace, we are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Grace, Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, is the mother and nurse of holiness and not the apologist of sin. Grace is the gift that we all need but would never in a million years have picked out for ourselves. Grace is the grounds of our acquittal, of our acceptance before a holy and just judge when every single one of us know we stand condemned before a holy judge. Grace is the exit ramp off the highway to hell that natural man is speeding down in the insanity of his self-righteous works of goodness. Grace is the spiritual fuel of faith that enables us to make it home to our Father in heaven. Have you tasted, have you tasted such radical grace? Augustus Toppleday says, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Another stanza, Rock of Ages. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, we're going to spend the final 15 or 20 minutes in this passage, contains five absolutely fabulous facets of divine grace. It gives us these incredible reminders concerning this radical grace that redeems and that saves us. These five facets reflect the glory of Christmas grace that arrived on earth in the form of a tiny Jewish baby boy nearly 2,000 years ago. I've looked at this passage so many times, and I've never seen such glory as I've seen this week. Let me share with you five amazing insights into this lavish grace today. Firstly, the grace of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ is an ageless grace. It is an ageless grace. Paul says in Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The verb has appeared, friends, is the Greek verb epiphano. It is the word from which we get our word epiphany, a revealing, a manifestation, an appearing. The grace of God is no ordinary grace. It is an ancient, ageless grace. In fact, this verb occurs only one or two other times in the entire New Testament, one of which is found in Luke chapter 1, verse 76 to 79, which reads this way, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the the sunrise shall visit us, there's the word, from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So why am I calling this, friends, a ageless grace? Well, let me direct your attention to two other verses actually in Paul's mind to these same groups of Christians, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 1. And I, help, I think they help us answer the question, when did God give us this grace? Why is it an ageless grace? Well, 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 8 and following reads this way. This is very, very helpful. 
Therefore, Paul writes, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Notice this, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of him, because of his own purpose and grace. Notice, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, grace came down when Jesus was born, but grace had already been set on us before the foundation of the world. When did God give us this grace? Sovereign grace, saving grace, is ancient grace, ageless grace. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. You see, it's important for us to realize that it's ageless or ancient grace, that we may not stake a claim on this grace. It comes to us before we deserve it, even before the foundation of the world. The grace that appeared in Christ, the grace that reached even the shores of ancient Crete and to these people who were always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons was actively working to affect our redemption before anything here on earth existed at all. In other words, Christmas grace is ageless grace, and it's to be savored in that way. The grace of God comes before any visible response or effort on the part of sinful men. Otherwise, it's not saving grace. Notice in the second place that not only is this an ancient grace, Paul describes it as an available grace. An available grace. For the grace of God, no doubt referring to the coming and the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a shorthand way of saying the gospel has appeared, bringing salvation, notice, for all people. For all people. It's ancient and it's available to you. But what does Paul mean here? And in what way is sovereign grace accessible grace? How can we receive it? Well, again, I refer you to two, patches, two passages, this time in the letter of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and following. Paul famously says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. For this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who wishes or desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself its grace as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. This grace in some senses is available indiscriminately for everyone through the preaching of the gospel. But notice also, glance down in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, to what Paul says there. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that for to this end we toil and strive in Paul's apostolic mission of preaching the gospel, because we have our hope set on the living God, 
who is the Savior, notice, of all people, especially of those who believe. So there is some distinction. There is some sense in which Jesus is the only Savior, but he's especially the Savior of all who believe. What is Paul saying here? I think what Paul is getting at in Titus 2, verse 11, is that this Christmas grace is now freely available to all kinds of people. It's not just a Jewish salvation, it's a Jew and Gentile salvation. It's now available both to slave and free, male and female, rich and poor. If you are a sinner, this grace is for you. Believe it and receive it. It's available. The sovereign work of divine grace is now the substance of the apostolic message, which applies universally to all categories of people. We don't know who will believe, but we know who we're sent to preach to. That is every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl. Grace has appeared for all people, and through the preaching and acceptance of this gospel, all manner of people, men and women, boys and girls, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, are now beneficiaries of divine grace. That's what Paul is saying. It's ancient, it's available, but notice also that it is effectual. It is an effectual grace. It accomplishes what God purposes it to accomplish. Titus 2 encourages us to see that this grace of Jesus leaves a trail of redeemed and restored lives in its wake. When this grace touches you, you cannot be the same. The grace of Christ accomplishes man's salvation. It does not merely make it it possible for man to be saved. What the Father designs and what the Son does, the Spirit of Christ delivers to the end. Notice verse 12 of Titus 2, keeping in mind the character of the Cretans that we mentioned a moment ago. This grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The word training us is a word that is often used for training children. The grace of God saves us and it trains us to follow in obedience the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Augustus Toppledey, rock of ages, cleft from me. Let, my, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. The guilt at the cross Jesus delivered us, but the power by the Spirit we are being delivered from day after day. We are being trained by this grace day after day. You see, the grace of Christ is not cheap, chintzy grace. It might come to us as free, but it was purchased at the priceless cost of Jesus' own blood. It is expensive grace. It is effectual Grace, not one ounce of Jesus' blood will ever be wasted on the church. Listen once more to what I'm going to read in Titus 3, beginning in verse 3. Now, not thinking about those Cretans, but realizing that we ourselves were like the Cretans. Listen to what Paul says. But with your own past in mind. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, and led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Do you think you're that much different than these Cretans? 
You're not. I'm not. But read on. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, no, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things, Paul writes, so that those who have believed in God, notice, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. If you lay claim to grace in faith, that grace should radically reorient your life forever. It's not that you never sin again. It's not that you become perfect, but you are definitely different than you once were. And I trust that's the testimony of every single one of us in this room. How can a Cretan become a Christian? How can a Cretan become a Christian? How did you become a Christian? For the answer is just the same. The answer is effectual grace. Effectual grace. Romans chapter 9 verse 16. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Why are you following Jesus in obedience? Because of God's divine grace. Because of his love. The grace of God which appeared in Christ is ageless, available, and effectual. But notice as well, it is also anticipatory grace. This tsunami of God's grace swept over the island of Crete, and it left behind a path of forgiven believers. It's the same in the church today. This grace is powerful as well as priceless. And it is anticipatory grace. And we note that in verse 13. Waiting. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice there are actually two advents in this text. There is the first coming or arrival of Jesus 2,000 years ago. And there's a hint of the coming arrival of Jesus. Waiting for the next arrival of Christ. Waiting for that blessed hope. The grace of God not only frees us from our past and fuels us to obey in the present, but it secures us and preserves us as we await Christ's imminent return. That's what grace does. It gets us in, it keeps us in, and it brings us home. That's grace. Interestingly, the Cretans, like all other ancient Greeks, believed that the gods were once mortal men. Did you know that? Mortal men and women who had been elevated to the status of deity through benevolent service and gifts to mankind. In fact, the Cretans believed that many of the gods, including their chief god Zeus, had been born and was buried on their own island. Consequently, apart from God's true grace, these people, all they could try to appease the, their gods and their saviors. That's, that's how they lived their life, trying to appease the gods that used to walk among them. But isn't Paul clever? Isn't Paul amazing how he subverts this man becomes God gospel with a God becomes man gospel? Jesus Christ, who Paul says in Colossians 1, we heard it earlier, 1, 19 to 20, in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 2, 9, in him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form is, is man's true and returning Savior. Not that used to live among us, but is 
come to abide with us. This is why the Cretans can have the hope of eternal life. Titus chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God who never lies like the Greek gods do, God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. God's grace in Christ we hear and we see here is ancient. It is available. It is effectual. It is anticipatory. And praise God, it is amazing. That's the last of the A's this morning. It is an amazing grace. Notice the last verse, verse 14. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It doesn't get any better than that. This grace is an amazing grace. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace, this amazing grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope for the glory of God. The Bible says, beloved, and he died for all. 2 Corinthians 5, 15. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And that's exactly how I want to end this message today. Maybe you're a former Cretan. But you profess to be a Christian. How can you as a Christian live like a Cretan any longer? This amazing grace which comes to us transforms us. And Paul admonishes us not to taste of this grace in vain. It's ageless. It's available for all. It is effectual. It accomplishes what God designed it to do. It makes us realize that our taste buds long for something this world does not provide. And it is simply, in a word, amazing. What sort of God would love an always lying, evil beast, lazy glutton? What kind of God would do that by coming himself to be beaten, to be betrayed, to be hung on a cross and ultimately killed? The God of the Bible would. Jesus Christ. Only a God Full of grace. Only a God full of grace makes sense with this story. What sort of God would delight to condescend to an earth like this, full of vile, full of unworthy creatures, simply to redeem them, to purify them for himself as trophies of his divine grace for his own treasured possession? Only the God revealed in Scripture and only the one manifested in the face of Christ whose birth we celebrate this season. Whatever happened to these Cretan congregations? 
Well, according to the church historian Eusebius, who died around the year 33-39 AD, the church in Crete, um, ironically, not ironically perhaps, but surprisingly, you might say, flourished through the second century AD. In fact, by the 8th century, there were more than 70 churches on the island of Crete. The gospel of grace transformed the island. The grace of God had appeared, bringing salvation for all people, had trained them to renounce their former ways and to wait for God's return on earth. May it do the very same for us. Would you bow with me as we close? Almighty God and Father, what a joy it's been this morning to sing and hear and pray and proclaim that you are the God of all grace. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to thy cross we cling. Naked each and every one we come to thee for dress. Helpless, O Lord, we look to thee for grace. Foul we to the fountain fly. O Lord, wash us, Savior, lest we die. As we prayed in Jesus' name.